people, we don't feel like heroes when we get home. That's not what we feel like. We feel like we, you know, we just got done, um, you know, a large scale mission, like doing a job. And when people are telling you that and calling you that, it just feels so awkward and weird and, uh, you know, uncomfortable. And uh, I mean, you, and you realize that that's not the way that you should receive it. And, you know, you try not to like show that that's how it's making you feel, but that's, that's exactly because you're like, I don't feel like a a hero or I don't feel like I should be like having these people lose their minds over, you know, me coming home or, or anything like that. You are listening to the Homeland Heroes Salute, sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation and produced by DairyCam. This podcast sometimes deals with mature content that may not be suitable for a younger audience and could be triggering for some individuals. Discretion is advised. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. No views expressed in this podcast represent any of the uniform services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, DairyCam, or any other organization. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homeland Hero Salute. My name is Alyssa, and joining me today as guest host is Arthur Briggs. We're joined again by Gary. Yeah, we're live. <laughs> to hear the first part of Gary's story, you can go back and listen now to our previous episode. Welcome back, boys. Uh, for this portion, we're going to dive into your service. So you started, Gary. Um, you joined in 1999, two, about two and a half years or so before the infamous 9-11, and um, what propelled our nation into a much more different feeling about joining the military before and after, I have to assume. I was a little too young to understand what that meant, but um, I think both of you can can kind of speak to what it meant to join right before an attack on our nation. Before we jump into that, we have uh, so some basic training-isms that I want to get out of the way. We're going to get to that in just a moment, so I don't yeah. want to jump too far. Gary, uh, so we talked in the last podcast about how you were in purgatory, which is like waiting to start your training. You're at Fort Benning, Georgia, I'm assuming, and mm-hmm. you pass your PT test. What's that? <laughs> yes. Bang, bang, Benning, Sand Hill. There you go. Um, so you're there. You do 13 push-ups, and you're ready to go to basic training. Uh, so that has to be a transition. So you went from like painting rocks and mopping floors to what? As far as just starting basic training, well, you know, uh, they load you up in these cattle trucks and they, uh, drive you out to these barracks and, uh, you, um, you stop in this, uh, mystery drill sergeant gets on the bus and, uh, just starts screaming at you like you've never heard someone scream at you before and uh, telling you to get off their bus and, and and asking you who told you to get on my bus. And, and, uh, you know, you grab all your stuff at that point in time, you have duffel bags, uh, you have two big duffel bags with you and uh, you're running and tripping over yourself and trying to move. And yet another drill sergeant standing out there screaming at you. And if you look at them, they'll tell you to you know, stop and do push-ups, and, and then a, they call this a shark attack. It's it's one of those things where they're trying to um, 
they're trying to see who cracks, who, um, you know, who completely loses it, who, you know, who, you know, veers off, who's different, you know, the, the crowd of people are going to run and, 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 um, converge onto these big bleachers where there's barely enough room for everybody to get onto, but they want to see who's, uh, who's, going to crack and who's not going to make it and who's going to, you know, break under the pressure ball screaming and yelling and, uh, you know, and, uh, so that, that, that's basically what we did. you know, we run, jump, get onto the bleaches and then they, uh, you know, they commence teaching you, uh, the basics of, you know, what you need to start doing as a soldier. So you say shark attack, we're all picturing it, picturing like an ocean sharks biting you help us understand what it's like to be in the shark attack. Uh, the drill sergeants are yelling, but they're like across the field or, or they're like arms reach away or they're telling you that you smell bad. Don't look at me, look at me. What, what's going on. And as you're 17 at this point, it's 2000, it's 1999. And what month did you start? This was in the summer. Yeah. Okay. So Georgia is really, really hot and maybe a little bit humid. What, and, and you said like, you know, I'm not trying to point it out, but you, you said you could do just 13 pushups to get through. And this is, this has got to be something completely different. Uh, yeah, it uh, absolutely wasn't, you know, it's, it's, it's good. To say. I really wasn't, wasn't thinking about how it comes across as a shark attack, but what, it, what it really is, is you have all these individuals that are instructors and they, uh, you know, they, they are, um, they're in your face. They're, they're, they're literally two inches from your face screaming at the top of their lungs and the spit from their mouths is hitting you in the face and they're, um, they're telling you to do a myriad of different things, you know, run, get up, get down, push ups, you know, uh, telling you to, you know, get in these bleachers, stand, stand in a position of attention. Don't look at me. What are you looking at? You know, uh, just trying to get you off kilter, you know, trying to, um, get you to crack. On an intensity level, one being sitting in front of your television and enjoying your favorite television show and 10 being, um, I just got in a car accident. What level of anxiety inducing situation is that what you call it? Yeah. That's like a hundred. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For the people that haven't experienced it, it's a rather intense thing. You said they're two inches from your face. The bill of their hat that goes around their head is four inches from for a bill so that the brim of their hat could be literally poking you in the face yeah they're absolutely losing their mind and you say screaming we picture like hey stop what are you doing we're talking about like mouth open from the depths of their soul communicating their deepest aggression towards you for looking at them yeah screaming voice cracking like you know yeah it's amazing as somebody that's uh, served with a ton of people that are senior enlisted now that used to be uh, drill instructors or drill sergeants, depending on the branch of service or um, RDCs, you can tell because their voice is permanently different. It's kind of raspy. Yeah. Like, so when you, when you run across an old sergeant major, that's like, Hey, get over here. You're like, Oh, you were a drill instructor or a drill sergeant, weren't you? <laughs> yeah. How'd you know? 
the well, permanent, permanent damage to your vocal cords. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It's amazing how much energy goes into the amount of communication in just day one of basic training. So thanks for sharing that with us. Just to, you know, one of the, one of the thing I later on talked to a, a buddy of mine that was a drill sergeant, you know, in the uh, late nineties. And he told me that one of the practices they had to do in drill sergeant school was yell at a tree for an entire hour. So I can tell you that's a true story. <laughs> and it's drill instructor school is like 10 times worse than basic training. So uh, in order to do that, you have to go through an immense amount of training. So yeah, great point. And, and they deserve our respect. I was talking recently to a Marine Corps drill instructor, and I think the divorce rate for somebody on drill instructor duty in the Marine Corps is over 75% of marriages that go into it. And not because of anything other than they're just never there. Yeah. So again, it's a sacrifice to our country that very few people understand. Um, so to all our drill sergeants, drill instructors, RDCs, we appreciate you out there serving our country by creating the next warrior. And Gary, talk to me about uh, the blue cord and your your graduation through basic training and also the relationships that you made over that. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it, once when you're that young and you go through that that training and. Uh, you know, you, you form that brotherhood. It's, it's, uh, and you've never done anything like that when you were younger, you know, you think you're going to know these people for the rest of your life. You know, it's, uh, you know, going through these different types of, um, you know, uh, challenges that you have to go through in basic training, whether it's, you know, these 12 mile, 12 mile road marches, these, you know, these PT physical fitness tests, you, you know, these land navigation courses, uh, you know, the, you know, uh, learning how to march and, uh, you know, drilling ceremonies and, uh, the, you know, there's, there's tons of stuff that you have to go through to actually pass and get through it. Uh, and, uh, you, 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 you be, become a big team, you know, helping each other. You don't, there's no single individual. So by the time you're graduating, you think you're going to know these people for the rest of your life. And, uh, it's, it's actually just, for me, it wasn't the case. You know, I, I, I don't talk to anybody that I went to basic training with, uh, anymore. Um, but, uh, I, that was the first time I ever had those type of bonds. I, I just couldn't have had, I couldn't imagine, you know, that I wouldn't uh, really have a relationship with those people after that. But, you know, it's just kind of everybody moves in a different direction. You know, I would have, I would have had a, a relationship with people if I had gone to units with them, but that just didn't happen. But, uh, you know, I, you know, being somebody who didn't graduate high school, when I graduated basic training, that was the first time I had ever graduated anything. And, uh, you know, it was a big elaborate ceremonies. My parents came down, uh, you know, it's, you know, you, uh, my father telling me that I was, you know, finally a man, you know, things like that. It was, uh, you know, it was, uh, really something that, uh, meant a lot to me at the time. Yeah. Do you remember the blue cord ceremony? Oh yeah, absolutely. What was that like? It's, uh, at the end of a, um, really long road march. It's 12 miles and uh and then we have a there's a big elaborate ceremony after it you know it's um 
it's uh, you know late at night. Everybody's really fatigued. It was a uh, you know trying to remember so long ago. I just remember uh, nighttime and the big fire, and you know uh, you know finally making it, and uh, you know uh, finally achieving what you spent so many weeks uh, working towards. What does the blue cord represent? So the blue cord is, uh, so the infantry is, uh, you know, it's 1% of 1%. So, uh, you know, they say 1% of the population joins the army and then 1% of the army is infantry. And out of that 1%, uh, they get to wear a blue cord, which is, is what you wear in a, your class A uniform. So your dress uniform. Uh, and it's a cord that is wrapped around the inside of your right arm, uh, like in, it like goes underneath your armpit, wrapped around up over the shoulder. And Gary. it just is something special to, that uh, only we can wear. Gary. Yeah. Why is the, the blue cord blue? Because God loves infantry. That's right. There it is. What makes the green grass green? Blood, bright red blood. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the cord, the cord is blue because God loves the infantry, and the grass is green because of bright red blood. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that a little more? Because I have no idea what you're talking about. What the? Uh, why does God love the infantry? Yes, and then why? Why is the green grass? that one the you know the uh the infantry guys with you they have such a chip on their shoulder you know that's, uh, we are we are the guys one percent of one percent that's it we we you know we know we're the best and we know we're the first ones there we know we're the ones that all the movies are made out made about you know you know nobody makes movies about the commo guys you know sorry for the commo guys i love you but uh, you know it's the 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 infantry guys are the ones that are the first ones boots on the ground we collect the most casualties we're the ones that are you know outside the wire you know in the mud you know the most you know and uh uh, you know, we, we have that type of job and, uh, you know, we have a bit of a chip on our shoulders about it, but, um, I mean, it's, what can I say? So there's motivational sayings, Alyssa, and, uh, why does infantry wear a blue cord? Because it's not because they wear a blue cord. It's because God made the sky blue because he loves the infantry. That's and right. then what makes the green grass green is the infantry's, uh, it's just one of those war fighting stances where somebody would scream to a bunch of guys what, or gals, what makes the green grass green? And the response would be blood, bright red blood makes the green grass green drill sergeant. I have fun with that. So that's, uh, okay. that's, that's where you get that from. You know, you can run into a, you can run into a grunt that is like, you know, a, a bartender in a bar and he'll, you know, have a conversation. He'll find out you're a grunt and uh, you know, he'll, look at you and go, uh, why is the sky blue? You say, well, because God loves the infantry. It's just one of those things we all know the answer to it, you know? And it's, yeah. it's been, it's been going on for, you know, far longer than I've been here. So. So it's definitely a huge accomplishment and a huge designation. Yeah, for sure. I think it is. 
it's it's a it's a different trade like they are mm -hmm. they are the soldier soldier i think every soldier serves and every soldier has value but uh, every for for every one infantryman i think there's 19 soldiers in support of that one infantryman uh, wow. meaning meaning like your your cooks which have value and do fight in combat really just alongside the infantryman but their role is there to support the infantryman the diesel mechanic which i was uh, my job is to make sure that they have the vehicle or the support team has the vehicle to get the supplies to the infantryman the right the you know the the armorer um the aviator and like all of the people uh, in the army are there to support the infantryman. So great, great little trivia there. Gr great learning yeah. experience. But I really do want to get back to Gary's story. Mm -hmm. You grad, you graduated basic training, first graduation. Dad's super proud. Says now you're a man, uh, which which is humorous because you're 17 years old and you're a uh, a man now, right? So where do you go uh, next? What's what's next for you? Well, I ended up. Um you know, going home for a little bit and then, uh, and then heading off to, uh, Korea, second infantry division. And, uh, Korea was wild. You know, I'd, um, there was no war going on. And in fact, that was when the war actually kicked off is when I was in Korea and, um, I had a buddy of mine who was actually a tanker and, uh, it was, <laughs> you know, history would say that tankers and infantry shouldn't be friends, but, uh, we're kind of past that in this day and age. Uh, so we were, uh, we were thick as thieves, him and I, and, uh, he actually talked me into, a um, putting in to go to, um, Germany, ended up going to Germany. And, uh, and, and, uh, once I was in Germany, I, Reenlisted and I reenlisted to go into the uh, first cab division, and that's where I I uh, deployed from. That's where I did all my all my deployments from the uh, first cab in Fort Hood, Texas, and uh, I ended up uh, getting there, being being in Fort Hood for about a month, and then uh, heading over to Iraq. Okay, so I'm going to back you up. 17, 18 years old in Korea. Did you, did you turn 18 in basic training in AIT? No, because I, I came home uh, partway through. That's right. That's right. Back. So I, I had turned 18 when I was home. Wonderful. So anyway, you go through AIT and then head over to Korea as an 18-year-old. Korea. 1999 early 2000 that's a big difference in new england <laughs> yeah for sure do you remember what that was like for you to experience a whole different country at a very very young age like a lot of people enlist in the army a lot of people are infantry a lot of people do those things but then like we go to fort drum or fort bragg or fort carson or fort Irwin, and like yeah hey, we're in the states and like we're in america you're in a foreign country that borders another country that would like nothing else than to destroy the southern country yeah so korea was uh, i i knew nothing about korea at that point in time when i was heading over there i had no idea about the tensions between the north and south i i it was a, a big learning curve once i got there i was completely ignorant to anything that was happening there at the time it was 
So, uh, but when I got there, I remember getting to Osan Air Base and, um, you know, them making decisions on who was going to go where. And, uh, you know, everybody was, you know, uh, the last place that you wanted to go was the 2nd Infantry Division. And uh, that's exactly where I ended up going, into Camp Casey, South Korea, which is about um, six miles uh, as the crow flies south of the DMZ, which is uh, the only base that's closer is Camp Greaves, which is actually right on the fence line of North Korea. And so that was that was wild. I had no idea what I was getting into on, at that. And um, it looked um, looked very third world, if you can imagine. You know, the people didn't speak English at all as far as, you know, the people in the shops and things like that. So you had to try to learn, you know, kind of greetings and uh, trying to learn to um, get them to understand what you wanted um, through body language and, and uh, pointing and, you know, hand signals and things like that. So you got very good at doing that. Um, spent, you know, in that unit, you spent a lot of time in the field and a lot of time training and there was no, um, there was, there was a different mission in Korea. Korea was, uh, their mission was training for the, in the event and the event that, uh, the two Koreas actually went to war again. So, uh, we were training for, uh, an invasion from North Korea, not anything like, uh, what the rest of the the army was training for. And so we're in, you know, you know, we're in the field a lot and, but the, the, um, the nightlife was uh, really uh, something wild in Korea as an eight, you know, an 18 year old kid, you know, they had, uh, I think there was like over a hundred bars in a one mile radius of the, the post where it was at. Everybody and, is broke the day after payday. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, I remember. You know, if if I if I didn't have any cash, the you know one of my buddies did, and we kind of tried to support each other. And you know, it was like twenty bucks is all you needed over there. You know, it's twenty bucks to go downtown, and it was like you know a dollar a beer type thing. And you know. I'd like to remind you of a, a particular drink. I've heard a lot of my friends that have been to Korea talk very highly of soju. <laughs> yeah, soju's that like uh like fermented distilled uh rice alcohol that the Koreans have and uh it's there's nothing that hits you like soju. You know, everybody just like anything else, you know, like uh, vodka, tequila, you know, whiskey, soju it's its own type of drunk that it gets you and then I remember getting there and and uh and uh, guys talking about, well, the first time you ever drink soju, you kind of want to lock yourself in your room first and, you know, get drunk off of it and see what happens because you, you just don't know what you're going to do on it, which I never had any issues with it. But when I got to the unit, uh, they do something called a thunder run. Have you ever heard of that? Right. I've, I've never heard of it. Let's uh, let's hear it. So Thunder Run is uh, where they take the new guy out to the bars and the, the, the new guy doesn't pay for anything. Then they go to each and every bar and they buy your drink and they see how far you can get. And you completely black out. And, and you remember this? All of it? Uh, uh, <laughs> no, I don't really. I mean, I, <laughs> it was a while ago and uh, I do remember I did really well. I was, uh, I was impressive at my uh, young age. You could certainly drink a lot more than I can do now. But um, 
Yeah, I uh, I remember uh, getting so drunk, I was swimming the uh, swimming in the creek at the end of it, and uh, passing out in my shower at the end of the night. <laughs> well, yeah. coming home and waking me up as I was passed out naked in my shower. <laughs> probably, Roommates are the best. Probably known the guy five days at that point in time. Yeah, he had to love you completely. <laughs> Brotherhood only goes so far. Uh, so you're in Korea. 9-11 happens. Uh, it, while we're recording this, it, it's relatively recent. Um, where were you? What were you thinking? What were your thoughts like before and after, during? Um, well, you know, the thought is, you know, being really pissed off. You know, we're at work in the morning and seeing it on the uh, TV in the day room. And, you know, just, just being absolutely, you know, I mean, at that point in time, it, they, everything was locked down. The post is locked down. Everybody is, you know, they're talking about, you know, you know, what's going to happen, going to war. And, you know, I remember being at that young age and like going and doing your like living will and stuff like that, you know, like having us like do paperwork like that when that happened, like, you know, and, uh, you know, just being so angry and just thinking about like, just thinking about how somebody really screwed up because we're definitely going to take care of business since this happened. Yeah. What were you doing? Where were you? You said you were in the day room when you first seen it. Yeah. No, on TV. Nice. Did you guys have a formation? What was the message from leadership, uh, initially? Yeah, so the message was not a lot at the point at, at that point in time. You know, message was just, uh, you know, uh, if I can remember, you know, I don't remember them really giving us too much information about, you know, what was going to happen. And, it, you know, we didn't. We actually just continued to and train like normal, you know, in the weeks after that. And we, you know, we were locked down on post. We couldn't leave for a while. So you said um, you volunteered and ended up in in Texas from Korea. Yeah. How did that work out? Well, I actually reenlisted to get there because because uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted to deploy because uh, I into I had some good insight that the first captain was deploying soon, so I reenlisted to get sent there, and uh, I was there. Um, about a month before we left. Nice. If you really wanted to deploy, you would have gone to 10th Mountain Division, but that's besides the point. Yeah. It's a far, it's a far greater division uh, than first cavalry division. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, home of the frozen chosen. But so you, you leave Korea, which is like a constant get ready for battle and go to Fort Hood, which is completely different. And you're there for a month and you deploy. Where What's, what's that like? You you want this. You, this is what you're trained for. This is what you re-enlisted for. This is where you want to be. And they're like, hey, the wheels are getting up. What's And this is 2003, uh, heading to Iraq. And you enlisted before 9-11. Afghanistan's been going on. You're stuck in Korea. You can't go get in the fight. Uh, the invasion of Iraq happens. And, and now you're in Fort Hood and looking towards deployment. What is wheels are going up on the airplane? What's that like for you? I actually had some time in Germany before I went to Fort Hood, 
So I went from Korea to Germany. So I didn't get to, I didn't get to Iraq until the beginning of 2006, but uh, I had a few years in Germany in which I did nothing but, um, you know, sightsee and party until I, you know, until I actually went to uh, Fort Hood. And that's what, that's what actually pushed me to, to re-enlist to get there because uh, I wasn't getting there any other way. And so from, from Korea, I went to Germany and then from Germany, I went to uh, Fort Hood. But uh, Fort Hood, when I got to Fort Hood, which was about a month before everybody uh, deployed, I wasn't with any of those guys when they were training before we left. So I was new to the unit. And so I, they ended up leaving about a week prior to, I, to me leaving because I was still processing into the unit. Uh, so I was told that, uh, I was going to actually meet those guys when I got, when I got to Kuwait and which is exactly what happened. So, um, getting, getting, actually leaving to go, um, I was all by myself. Uh, I didn't have anybody come down and see me off. I just flat out refused. It was, uh, just me getting onto a bus going to the, uh, Fort Hood airport. And, uh, giving the old, the old lady there, the hug lady, uh, you know, a big hug and kiss before we all get on the airplane. And then we, uh, we fly out to Bangor, Maine from Bangor, Maine, we hit Germany. And then from Germany, we fly into Kuwait and then Kuwait, they do like, um, like a three week integration where you get used to the, uh, the air and the heat and, uh, they do some, uh, safety trainings and, uh, you uh, recall and zero your weapons and things like that. And then uh, you find out exactly where you're going to go in Iraq. And uh, we were going to Camp Taji, which is about uh, 20 miles north of Baghdad. No kidding. Taji 06? Yeah. So my brother was there from a unit from Germany, and he was uh, putting up armor on Humvees the entire time, which was really a terrible job. That's why. (laughs) I remember that. I remember all that. <laughs> uh, we, okay, uh, so you drove up from Kuwait? No, we flew. And, uh, okay. Yeah, so that that's a, that's an experience in itself because if you're uh, if you're new to combat, you know, guys that broke berm and stuff like that had already flown in, and so there were a few guys that already had been there before that knew it was going to happen. But uh, the the guys like me that had never been. Yeah, in combat, didn't realize what a a combat dive was in a C-130. And uh, so you end up flying Kuwait. Walk me me through that. Yeah, you end up flying uh, flying out of Kuwait, which, you know, Kuwait is pretty peaceful at this time. You know, uh, you're not seeing any type of, um, you know, dangers or anything like that. Still, really a different being in you know an Arabic country, but you fly out of Kuwait and you go up to you know thirty thousand feet, and uh, you're kind of cruising, and everybody's you know everybody's basically falling asleep, and you sit in a C one thirty, and the C one thirties actually don't have like seats. Um, uh, the C five, the bigger the bigger airplanes, those ones have seats, but the C one thirties are they uh, they have like cargo nets that you sit on that are like um, the, the seating that are aligned on the side of the airplane. You're sitting on basically cargo nets and you're all jammed in there. And uh, 
out of nowhere, you're, you're basically dozing off. You can't hear anything because of how loud it is. And out of nowhere, the airplane takes a complete nosedive and uh, you go straight down. And uh, nobody tells you about this. You have no idea that this is about to happen. And you think the worst because out of the back of this C-130, they shoot flares. And these flares are um, to detract anything that would be heat seeking. And you go down. I mean, you're basically it's like it's like um, it's like the world's uh, fastest deep diving roller coaster. You're you're lifted up out of the seat, and you, the harness that's holding you in the seat is is basically holding you from going into the ceiling of the airplane. And then at the last second, the airplane pulls out of this dive, and you just compress like a slinky into the seat. And then before you know it, you're on the ground. Yes. Yeah. I love completely. it. And I mean, you're freaking out. You have no idea what just happened and, and you don't know what happened until you talk to somebody and they explained it to you. Combat landing. Yeah. Combat landing. Yeah. And they, the it's pilots, amazing. they get a kick out of it because people lose their minds. Did anybody vomit? Not that I remember, but I was oh, pretty much in my own world at that point in time. Uh, the flares, for everybody listening, uh, you're sitting in a can. You don't see them. All you hear is thump, 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 and I'm leaving the plane. So you're not expecting that. Nobody tells you it's coming. You're thinking, oh, God, we're either getting shot at or or shooting somebody. Either way, we're in danger in an airplane, and I have no control. And by the way, you're plummeting to the ground. So all of that's going through your mind and you're also entering a war zone. So you'd be the, uh, the bile in your stomach is eating your esophagus and, uh, it's really exciting. It's exhilarating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On my trip down. So I, I, I both flew into Iraq and drove up into Iraq, uh, through the berms and, and went up to Baghdad. But, um, one of the lieutenants pulled off his cape and just, vomited in his k-pot which was extraordinary that was actually afghanistan i think but yeah Woo-wee. fun stuff so you land in did you go to baghdad or taji i actually um landed and uh landed at taji so oh, at nice. that time taji was um you could land there but you couldn't fly out of there because the runway wasn't long enough and by the time i left they had they had lengthen the runway just to the standard in which you could fly out, which didn't sit easy with anybody. But so we landed in Taji and uh, in my mind, we landed like, you know, in Vietnam, hot LZ, you know, people shooting at you and, you know, and, but that's not what happened. We landed on like a secure, you know, airfield with, you know, nobody or, you know, nobody around. There was no real danger, but in my mind, it was, I just remember getting off the airplane and like wanting to go a hundred miles an hour and get my bags, throwing things off trucks. You know, I was, didn't, it was, it was pitch dark out. So I couldn't see anything. I, I didn't know where I was or what I was surrounded by. And, uh, it wasn't until like a, you know, somebody who was organizing everything grabbed me and said, Hey, relax. You're, uh, you're in a secure area. You don't have to worry. You know, nobody's going to, uh, 
shoot you or snipe you or whatever it was that I was afraid of at that point in time. And so I was just shaking my head north and south, like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I get it. You know? And then, um, you know, the, that, that point in time, they, you know, get you your, uh, you know, your chew, which is like a, um, big conics or, a the, you know, sheet metal trailer that you keep your stuff and you don't actually live there because you live outside of the wire while you're there, but you keep all your stuff there when every, you know, a couple of weeks you come back and visit your stuff, you know, maybe jump on the computer real quick and call your mom or something like that. And then before you go back out and live outside the wire for another couple of weeks. But. Okay. So you're speaking in language that some people like I'm with you, but you yeah. jump outside the wire. What do you mean? So, so the Todd, Camp Todd is a, is a, is a big, um, uh, it's an, I guess an infrastructure it's uh, of um of tents and buildings and uh living quarters and it's it's of all kinds of different units and to uh, people you know military personnel of you know uh, all different jobs you have the, you know you get your personnel people you get your maintenance guys your mechanics your you know finance guys uh, the headquarters you know the brass you know, the top guys and and uh, the wire is basically what we denote uh, is you know like constantina wire or you know that surrounds it and uh, we're the guys that live outside of that, you know? So we come back and we refit and we do the maintenance and fuel our vehicles and stuff like that at these bases. And then we go and we live outside of the wire, whether we have, uh, you know, uh, whether we go out for a couple of days or we go out for a couple of weeks, you know, whether we live, you know, what I spend most of the time living, it was a Iraqi police station is where we, where I started living when, uh, when I first started leaving the wire, when I got to Iraq my first time. Right. I like it. So what you're saying is like Taji is like the base of operations and a semi-secure environment. So while you're there, you're not always on guard, but you, yeah, when you when leave it, the, the wire. The falsehood that Iraq, I like Taji was uh, completely safe because it wasn't who got bombarded by mortars all the time, but it certainly wasn't uh, like uh, you didn't have to wear all your gear, you know, you have to wear uh, your, uh, you know, your, um, your vet, you know, bulletproof vest and your uh, helmet and your anything like that while you were on the base, but you certainly did when you were outside of the wire, you know, you were dressed, dressed all the time. Right. Uh, you know, that was something on, you know, the only thing that you're really worried about with either rockets or mortars while you were on, you know, on Taji, which they got hit. Which were daily. a real thing on Taji. Yep. Taji yeah. got hit daily, right? Yeah. So, so uh, you'd go out on missions and uh, it's 2006. So I think I have a good idea of what your mission set was, but you, you're going out and occupying a space and what's that like for you 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 have to be constantly on guard completely trusting the people that are on guard that they're doing their job just to close your eyes and rest right well you know uh, they they you're trying to get a concept of what you're actually there for and what you're doing you know uh you know what what your mission is going to be you know and we were 
we're being sent to a, a small town. Um, and the small town we were in was Husanea, which was just right outside of the gate. And uh, we were staying in a, uh, a police station, which just had like a, you know, a room for us to, you know, to congregate and stuff like that. And we would just run patrols outside and we would secure the area. You know, we would, you know, drive our Humvees out there and then we would walk outside, walk from from that air, from that uh, police station. Well, it took me a long time to really figure out like the hell or the point of us doing that was. But we're basically just securing the area and we're just, you know, trying to make sure that they weren't planting uh you know, IEDs and, you know, bombs on the roadways. We were trying to, we were looking for, you know, insurgents. We were looking for, you know, uh, bad guys, the, you know, to put it in layman's terms, you know, uh, we we're constantly, you know, talking to the locals and seeing if they knew things, you know, we were interviewing people we were you know, we were running census for the towns, you know, you know getting a, you know, getting a workup of how many people lived in the towns and, you know, we're going through houses, we're searching houses. And, uh, you know, when we, when I first got there and we first left and left a wire for the, and to go to the area where we're going to be, there was already people there and we were going to relieve them. And I remember us being like, uh, you know, all the uniforms are super clean and, you know, I had all of the, you know, high speed equipment and gear. And, you know, we look like a million bucks. And when we get out there and we look at these guys, everybody was drenched in sweat and their uniforms are crusted with salt. And, you know, they, they weren't wearing the elbow pads and knee pads that we were. And they were really like, we were, you know, super on guard about, you know, where we were and they were very laxed and very, you know, you know, they weren't, uh, they just didn't look very bothered by the environment as much as we were. And I, I remember that being really, um, really strange, you know, like they, you could be in that environment and, you know, not be like losing your mind, you know, and uh, which I quickly learned was pretty normal once you're in a combat environment, you know, for longer than a few weeks, it's you just don't really um worry about all of the unnecessary stuff that you do when you get out there but i remember you know going out in the uh the the uh, unit that we're relieving they were actually a unit out of hawaii the 25th infantry division they were there and they had uh strikers and we had bradley's and uh you know them uh, showing us the ropes, we're just walking around with them, letting us know what routes that they like to travel and uh, and things like that, and, and uh, just getting your first uh, initial walk through the combat zone. And I always I always tell people something nobody ever talks about is how bad that country smells. That's country smells like like a post apocalyptic like dumpster fire it's it smells like burning tires it's it's terrible and uh, and that's like one of the biggest triggers for me is if i smell something that is any remotely close to like burning plastic or something like that it just reminds me how bad that smell is so it's just so pungent and, and you smell it everywhere you walk there's always somebody burning something you know it's like the town dump is on fire it's terrible 
Yeah, I can relate to the smell um, and, and agree. We don't talk about it a lot. Kind of like we don't talk about how incredibly hot porta potties were or digging holes and stuff like that. We, we kind of put that stuff behind us. Just don't talk about it. Um, but we should talk about it because it's part of the story. Hey, you said that's intense. You're out controlling. You're outside the wire. You're kind of getting a grasp. You watch the old unit that's kind of like disheveled tired overwhelmed and and you come in kind of crisp and clean um how long were you there how long were you in iraq we were there for 16 months yeah so you were there when the year-long deployment got extended to 16 sometimes 18 months for folks yeah so did you know when you left it was going to be 16 months or did you think it was going to be a year no i had no idea when we left that it was going to be that we were going to be extended. So when did you find out? How did you find out? And what did that mean? So well, for know, everybody listening, I'm I'm just going to paint this picture. You're deployed to a combat zone for a year. That's the intent. So uh, say you know today it's um, December first, two thousand twenty. You leave knowing you're not coming back till Defe- December first, two thousand twenty one. But while you're there, and, and, and Gary's going to talk about this, while you're there, at some point somebody says, hey, you know how we're supposed to get out of here December 1st, 2021? Um, we're just kidding. We're actually going to make that uh, March or April. So you've missed Christmas. You've missed Thanksgiving. You've missed birthdays. You've missed anniversaries. You've missed friends getting married. You've missed friends dying. You've missed an entire season of the Giants destroying the New England Patriots. Um, and, or, or, or the Yankees beating the, the Red Sox, you know, or the, the Knicks beating the Celtics, whatever it is, that's your fancy, like you miss it. And then you, uh, are told like, Hey, there's a good chance you're going to miss some more. So helping people get into that frame of mind, Gary, what was it like? They, uh, it was, it was rumored before it happened. And I think we're at like a month, uh, 10 or whatnot when it happened. Oh, you know, it was like rumored that we we're going to get extended, but you know, it was just a bad rumor that nobody wanted to admit. And then, you know, we all congregated in the motor pool where all the vehicles are kept and all the maintenance is done. And, um, and the, uh, air colonel was down there and, uh, he, uh, basically said, Hey, this is, this is what's happening. And, uh, you know, suck it the fuck up. This is what we do. And, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're going to be here at least another, you know, another, uh, you know, four or five months, whatever it was at that. And then uh, they're going to revisit it and, you know, and uh, you either go home or we'll be here longer. And um, I remember, you know, it's it just one of those things. It was a big suck, but in the army, the army, that's what the army tra- trained you for. The army just trains you to embrace the suck. You know, it's, you're constantly, you know, you constantly uh, dealing with the uh, green weenie, as they say, the uh, the army's green weenie. You know, and we, uh, you know, we 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 accepted it, and that's what we had to do. And uh, and I remember, I remember what really helped me. I'm kind of blessed to have had this story. But when I found out I got uh, extended, I remember going to. Um, having some, some time to, uh, go to like the PX, you know, the uh, post exchange where we, you know, you can buy, you know, you know, toiletries and like, uh, you know, uh, 
food, you know, if you wanted to, uh, that's on the base. And, and then they have this MWR there and the MWR is like, um, a place that has like couches and chairs and pool tables and things like that. And you can call, you know, they have phones and, uh, televisions and things like that. And I remember sitting in the MWR and I was just had a bowl of water and there was a kid that was on the couch and, and I remember looking at him and he asked me how I was doing. I says, you know, I'm, I'm all right. We just found out we're getting extended. And, uh, he was from a unit in Alaska and he had told me, that uh, they um, they got extended, and then when they were getting ready to go home, they um, flew back to Alaska, and they landed on the um, runway in Alaska, and they stopped the airplane, and uh, they wouldn't let anybody get off the airplane in Alaska, and uh, they got uh, they got word that uh, they were to turn the airplane around and go back. And they had to turn the airplane around. They didn't even let them off the plane. And they went back to Iraq and they got extended again. And oh I remember my gosh. Tell the story. And it was actually much worse than that because when they got back from off the airplane, they had suffered uh, severe casualties after that. And it was something he was dealing with with his unit. And I'm sure we could, could recall more details on exactly the unit and who this person was. But I just remember, like, me feeling terrible about being extended and then listening to this guy just blow me out of the water with this, like, terrible story about how he had already, he had been there, you know, going on 18 months. I'm like, wow. And his unit being, like, you know, uh, you know, suffering some severe casualties after they were already supposed to be home and having to deal with those type of things. You know, and those are things you have to deal with. And those are the things that are hard to swallow when you're, you know, actually supposed to have gone home a certain day and you don't. And then, you know, you suffer these casualties of war. And it's, it's really hard. To, it's really hard to swallow those things because you think, you know, if you would have just went home the right time, the person would have never, you know, never been blown up or you would never been blown up. And, you know, it's tough. And you know, that's one of the, those, those are some of the hardest things to, uh, to really wrap your head around. Yep. That wrecks my heart, man. Like that is, that is absolutely horrid. Uh, so yeah, perspective is everything, right? Somebody's got it worse than you. Uh, so you, uh, did you do one trip to Iraq too? Two trips, yeah. Okay, so the second trip, can you fast forward to that? I just want to, so we try to do three episodes, right? So we do the one like before service, in service, and your story is, is pretty pretty extreme. You got a whole bunch of content in service, but I don't want to skip your second deployment because I'm sure it's different. And uh, yeah. what'd you do the second time? Were you still at Were you still at CAB, or did you move to a different unit? No, I stayed with the CAB. My my second deployment was actually um, quite a bit different, and um, I ended up uh, uh, we ended up getting back. And uh, you know, the first tour was brutal. You know, my battalion. Uh, we lost 48 guys and uh, excuse me, my brigade, we lost 48 guys total, uh, over the course of that six months. Uh, so we, you know, it, it was, it was pretty brutal and that was definitely the, the, the height of the Iraq war. And, um, we got back and, uh, you know, we, you know, 
getting back from and and reintegrating back into society and stuff like that it was extremely challenging. But um, we, tra- we we just started training right away, and uh, I ended up um, being voluntold to be the personal security officer for the uh, command sergeant major, and um, the. Uh, it was kind of a job that nobody really wanted to do. And, uh, you know, it's, you have to go interview with the Sergeant major to do it. And, um, so I went in and, you know, everybody was telling me like, yeah, if you don't want to do it, just go in there and, you know, paint yourself to be like a, a shit bag, you know? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to meet the Sergeant major of the battalion and I'm going to act like I'm a shit bag. So I don't have to do a job. I don't think so. So, you know, I went in there and I was truthful and honest with them about who I was. And, and then I ended up being selected, you, you know, to, um, basically be his bodyguard, you know, as, you know, for a lack of better explanation, you know, for when we ended up deploying. So I ended up training with him for, you know, the entire year. And, um, when deploying, I ended up deploying with him and working uh, with him the entire deployment, which uh, ended up being really exciting for me because the war was really dwindling down at that point in time. The you know two thousand eight, nine, ten time frame, uh, and uh, I ended up being one of the guys that basically left the wire every single day and got to travel. You know, I was sta- I was. Uh, ended up at Camp Liberty um, at the uh, Baghdad International Airport uh, base there, and uh, just like the like main headquarters. And uh, we ended up, you know, leaving every single day and doing, uh, you know, going. You know, Sergeant Major's mission was to uh, go to each. Um, base in which he had um soldiers at you know so we he had soldiers on all kinds of different outposts and different bases around iraq so i was the guy that had to you know make sure that you know he was good and he was protected the entire time he's outside of the wire so i you know i didn't got to do some uh pretty cool training you know as far as like uh protecting a human being. And, uh, then I had, you know, I was in charge of his crew, you know, the soldiers underneath me. And, um, and so I, I, you know, a lot of guys were, uh, were, um, you know, I wasn't on the line anymore. So there were a lot of guys were uh, bitter about that. And, uh, a lot of guys thought it was pretty cool and got mixed reviews and, you know, uh, you know, guys were, you know, the, the missions were few far in between for a lot of the guys that were out on the, you know, the different bases and stuff like that. So I, you know, I, I, I felt like I, I, I really benefited and uh, made my time go by a lot faster. My second tour, because I was able to do a kind of a, that specialized mission. It was, and I, I thought it was a lot of fun, really. Yeah. So for people that are like thinking, uh, so he's the Sergeant Major's driver that's uh, driving Miss Daisy around Iraq with a little bit of security. Uh, there's also this, this idea. And he said the other guys were still on the line, meaning doing their normal jobs. This is, he's been selected out of his unit and, and put in this position because you know, there's trust and confidence there that he's able to do that. And then 
you're also given a, a different vantage point for the entire deployment. You're having conversations with the sergeant major. You have a different understanding of what you're doing, why you're doing it, and the value of each soldier. So um, uh, an incredible different perspective. I'd love to hear more about uh, how meaningful that was uh, at some point. So what year is that that you're you're in um, biop? By the way, Camp Liberty is like paradise in Iraq. So this is a pretty sweet deployment for you. You get to get to go. They have green bean coffee, and anybody that knows knows. If you don't know, you don't know. Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> got nothing on green bean. But you go out every day, but come back. You come back, and and you're enjoying your your hooch. You're enjoying some hot showers, some amazing chow halls, like. You're talking about Golden Corral. This is this is like the Dust Bowl Corral. Yeah, it was uh, it was nice on uh, in Biop at Liberty. It was nice, but we ended up uh, ended up spending a lot of time uh, in this uh, cop right outside of Fallujah, uh, which wasn't so nice. <laughs> but that's where the Sergeant Major decided that's where he wanted to, uh, you know, uh, you know, stake. Uh, set up uh you know where he wanted to be most of the time so we ended up being there which i didn't get the nice hot showers and the good chow halls when i was there but uh, you know i did more often get it when, I, when we went around to the other places so i i did benefit from the i did benefit quite a bit i you know i i was pretty lucky at the end of the day to be able to do something like that which you know the perspective being the sergeant major's driver uh did it change from being like in a line company to being so a driver your perspective okay. about the mission and or so i wasn't his driver it's a little different um he the, his driver basically worked for me um so when what i was when i was there i was uh, i was basically a dismount uh i was a dismount infantryman that was in charge of um when he left the vehicle i had to be esd i was basically his shadow you know so um he he did have a driver yep. but his i was in charge of his driver and uh that so basically when wherever he went i was i was going with him to make sure that uh you know and if shit hit the fan then i was the guy that had to grab him and um, drag him back to the truck and get him into the truck and get the truck out of there you know uh, get him get the truck right. moving or the you know the if the uh you know, convoy hit an IED. I was making sure that the truck kept going and moved past the uh, you know the you know the blast zone and you know, and uh, things like that. I'm very, very sorry for demoting you. So no, it's all right. It's a, yeah. and COIC. But how how did your perspective change as as you moved out of the line and into that role? It's one of those things. It's you're kind of blessed with um, you know you know shit rolls downhill. So you know when you're on the line, you're just complaining about um, your uh, leadership. You know and. Uh, you know, you're, you were kind of wondering why the leadership's not doing this and how come you guys don't have this. And, you know, and uh, when you're working at that level, you kind of see, you know, the different, um, the different uh, challenges that the leadership has, you know, in front of them. And so you, you kind of, you're able to put together the pieces. So you have a little bit more of a, um, an understanding of why, 
the rhyme and reason for you know what happens you know at the ground level and you know what i'm saying it's you know when you're when you're in a when you're in a line unit you don't really understand why all the things are happening around you and why you have to do all the things that you do and then when you get up and you start working in the you know in the higher levels you start to see the reasons for that and then that was some perspective that I got and uh you know it was really valuable for me and I, you know I tried to convey that to guys you know at times but uh you know I found for the most part nobody really wanted to hear it that is true. Nobody really wants to hear that their opinion doesn't matter. It's a rough thing to swallow. So, uh, man, that's incredible. And this deployment wasn't 18 months or 16 months, I hope. It was a solid year. No, it was uh, just a little bit over 12 months. Whew. Thank you for your service, brother. I, I really do admire yeah, you. what you've done for our country. When we're when we, you get back, you, you go back to Fort Fort Hood, what's the uh what's the the rest of your career look like in the army i got out uh, i got out as soon as i got back you know i uh they basically said to me yeah i was pretty beat up by the end of everything and uh they they basically said to me that um you're gonna go recruiting if you stay in and i said uh that's not gonna happen i'm not gonna be a recruiter and i said i'll go I'm, i'm gonna get out i'm gonna go to school and uh, so I got back from Iraq and uh, I started clearing right away and went, you know, took some, took some leave, went home. And then I, you know, once I got back to my unit, my platoon sergeant was like, you're a, you're, you're a short time or so, you know, I'll see you later. You can spend the rest of your time just clearing. And uh, that's what I did. You know, I spent the rest of my time uh, going to meetings about how to, uh, you know, how to function in the real world. And, you know, uh, going and turning in all my equipment and, and and things like that, all the checklists that the Army has you do before you get out, which took, you know, took a good, you know, two, three months to do. And they left me alone. Nice. That's both nice and, uh, and kind of scary, right? Um, so you get out and you head back home? Yeah, I, I, I got out and I uh, packed up my truck and, uh, and drove from... Uh, Fort Hood, Texas to uh, New England. Just a short drive. Just a few hours. <laughs> I think that's that's a good uh, segue to stop there, guys. Thank you for joining us for the second part of Gary's story. For part three, tune into the next episode of the Homeland Heroes Salute. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at DairyCam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. Thank you for listening, and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Heroes Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.